The following sermon is brought to you by thepreachersvault.com, bringing old-time preaching to a new generation. Let me ask you, if you don't mind, go ahead and open your Bibles with me. When you get there, go to Colossians chapter 4. We're going to be examining here in just a few moments Colossians chapter 4, particularly taking view of verses 2 through 6. So Colossians 4, 2 through 6. Colossians chapter 4, 2 through 6 is a context that I have probably for much lack better terms entitled for myself at least lifestyle evangelism. And the question I want to begin with this morning is a very simple one to all of us. Basically this question and that is could you do better in your evangelistic efforts? Can you think of any place in the evangelistic efforts that you do yourself, not your neighbor, not anyone in front of behind you, not a preacher, not an elder, not a class teacher or anything. Can you think of any areas in your mind where you realize that you could do better? I can answer that question for myself, and that is there is absolutely no, no doubt in my mind that there are a number of areas by which I could do a lot better. A whole lot better. But I also understand that Ironiton, we here, we do a lot of good. I mean, we honestly do quite a bit of good in the fields of evangelism, typically speaking. For example, we do much good sometimes in the fact that we have uh, the ability to uh, do the card writing on next door. We do that once a week. We gather over there. Different groups do. We write cards to individuals. And I have seen, and you have seen as well, I'm sure, the impact that that sometimes makes in people's lives. As a matter of fact, I've seen a number of times where we have got thank you notes for the cards. And I remember when I was a kid, I used to, my grandmother lived across Munford from me, and she would send me a card, and I'd send her a thank you for that card, and she'd send me a thank you for the thank you card, and we'd go back and forth. There was some communication, some reciprocation that came as a result of that, but nonetheless, People appreciate that. That not only lets the community know that we exist, it also lets them know that we care. And that's a big part of what we do. And that's a part, a smaller part at least, of our evangelistic efforts. In addition to that, we sometimes do the new mover baskets. Now, if you're like I am, you've delivered a number of those and you've had some situations where that really seemed to make an impact. It certainly got a conversation started. It got you in the door, got you talking to someone. Probably a handful of those, if you're like I am, didn't necessarily go that way. Maybe the person hadn't actually recently moved, and so you felt awkward, but just look them in the eye and say, look, this is a good neighbor basket. It's all it is. We want to let you know that we care, and that makes an impact. There are people that I still see now that I meet up with in town, different places, and they say, hey, you're, you, you brought the yes. I'm, we're the ones that brought the basket. That's Ironathan Church, and that makes a difference. Uh, I know from time to time we do and have done uh, with this congregation, we've done door knockings, for example. And oftentimes those are kind of related to some event that we're having, a gospel meeting, a lectureship, a singing, summer series, VBS, a number of things. Uh, it seems that we try really hard as, as this congregation to put together at least a quarterly event to give us, for lack of better terms, what an excuse to be at their doorstep and to be asking them to come and be with us. And that's very effective. A number of us get involved in it time to time. I know some right here in the room right now, they're involved in personal Bible study for people, sitting down, opening a Bible, discussing the truth. Huge impact. And that's kind of ultimately where we need to get, to where we can spend time with those people in that way. 
I know of situations where our advertisements, a lot of that's behind the scene, but for everything that we do around here, there's a flyer that goes out, there are things that are posted on social media, there's access that is given at least to our community to be aware, again, that we exist and that we care. Our live stream, same situation in that. Our live stream does serve those uh, who are among us, who are shut in, who are sick, but it also serves as a point where people can come and say, well, I'm not really comfortable yet visiting with these people, but I can go online and watch and learn about them and I can be curious. All big deals, all stuff that we're involved in as far as our evangelistic efforts. But again, the question I asked in the beginning was, is there anything that I personally or you would say to yourself, is anything in which I can do better? I think the answer again is everything. Everything can do better. But even among that list of things that we are able and willing to do here at Ironiton, there's always some things that could be done better if for no other reason in the point of the way that we live our lives. And so the title here on the screen before you is that of lifestyle evangelism. If we can do nothing else in this life, we have to live a life that shows people that we are real that we're exactly who we are. Because it wouldn't matter how many cards or baskets or doors we knock or Bible studies we're involved in, if someone looks to the lives of any of us and is able to say toward us, you know what, I know the way that person really acts. I know the way they live. I know the way that their lives are outside of their church building walls. That can completely destroy our influence as well as sometimes destroying their minds what they believe and know about the Lord's church. So if you're already in Colossians there, Colossians chapter 4, we're going to be examining again verses 2 through 6 in that and just kind of give you some background of the book of Colossians. The Colossian letter obviously is written on behalf of God, so by His inspiration. It's written by the pen of Paul. You learned that back over in the first chapter. And what Paul has done through God's inspiration all the while is he has addressed basically our lives. For example, in chapters 1 and 2, he deals with a doctrinal situation. He goes through many, many things upon which all of us should be well established doctrinally, things that we should avoid, things that we should be involved in, things that we should look out for, things that we should be on guard against. That's basically chapters 1 and 2. Chapters 3 and 4 are more of a practical section, and that is he deals with us practically. And particularly in chapter 3, verses 1 through 11, what he really speaks to there are our personal lives, okay? That is how we live on the inside when oftentimes the outside does not see. Verses 12 through 17 of chapter 3 deal with something differently, and that is it deals with our church lives how we are as Christians, particularly when we gather inside of these four walls, how we react and act toward one another. And a lot of that has to do with our putting favor on the brother or sister next to us and lessening of ourselves. He deals with us when it comes to our home life, verses 18 to 21 of chapter 3, and that is how we're to function in the home. And particularly Paul addresses all the members of the home, whether it's the husband, the wife, the children, or what have you. He deals with us in our work lives, beginning there in verse 22, going through the first verse, actually, of chapter 4. So 3, 22 through 4 and verse 1, he deals with our work lives, the relationship that exists between our bosses and ourselves. He uses the slave, labor, master type of situation, but that's what we would see as modern workplace. 
how we deal with that and how the main thing that we can do in life, in the workplace, is to serve our master that's physical on this earth as if we're serving the Lord because we are. But then in chapter 4, and the break here is unfortunate. If you look in the text the way you have it, the break there where it says chapter 4 in your Bibles is unfortunate because 4 verse 1 goes with the preceding chapter. But in chapter 4 verses 2 through 6, he deals with our communal lives. How we ought to be seen in the community. Let's just notice a little bit of this. He says, Masters, give, I'm sorry, verse 2 of chapter 4, continue earnestly in prayer. Be vigilant with all thanksgiving, meanwhile praying also for us that God would open a door of the word to speak the mystery of Christ, which I am also in chains, that I may make manifest how thou ought to speak, to walk in wisdom toward those that are on the outside, redeeming the time. Let your speech, conversation, speech, always be with seasoned with grace, or be with grace, season with salt, that you may know how you ought to answer each one. And then the rest of the chapter, verse 7 through the end of that, he starts going back and commemorating and commending many that he has worked with. But this address to the communal lives come forth from several different perspectives. And such as Cliff has been doing the last few weeks, I want to just kind of share on the screen with you kind of the notes that I made of that. And you can jot those down because we won't finish anyway. But there are three things that are necessities in our lives if we're going to live a lifestyle of evangelism. That's where we allow our evangelistic efforts to be everything that drives us, everything that uh, just intends us to go out and to share the gospel with others. And it comes down to these things. The first thing I want to notice with you really comes in verses 2, 3, and 4. All those verses together uh, boil this out. But that is the idea that our lifestyle evangelistic efforts need to begin or commence with growing prayers. You know, when you think about evangelism, at least I do, I think, well, that is the time when just as we knock on those doors, the door opens, we think about the first things that we're willing to say or willing to ask, the flyer there that's in our hand or what have you. But the truth is a real evangelistic effort begins way before we enter into anyone's home. It begins before we even leave our own homes. And it's what we're willing to do as far as praying for that effort. Considering it this way, the truth is oftentimes what we do is we go into people's houses and we make requests of them prior to us having ever prayed for them. You see, what we'll do sometimes, at least I'm guilty of this, is that I'll come in and I'll sit down and I want to talk to this person about God when I have not talked to, talk to God about that person. The very first establishing place of this is prayer. Now, how Paul shows us this is the first phrase and several of them that come in. First of all, I'm reading from the New King James, but he says, continue earnestly in prayer. Old King James just says continue, but it's continuing earnestly in prayer. That is our mandate. That is, that is what we're being called upon God to do. When I think about prayer, maybe you're the same, I've thought about prayer so many times in my life and thought, well, prayer is obviously a privilege given to the Christian. Is that true? Prayer, prayer is a privilege given to a Christian. Yes, it is. But more than that, it is not just a privilege. It ought to be a part, you see. 
Privileges are those things that we think about that we gain access to and then we turn to that and we say, well, it's great that I can have the privilege of prayer, but it's also good that I don't have to do it. You may have privilege or access to something in a business. Say, for example, you get a coupon in the mail and it says, well, if you take this coupon to Krispy Kreme donuts, you get a dozen donuts. You think, what a privilege that is. I've got this coupon, and the next time I'm in the area, I'll go by Krispy Kreme, I'll get that dozen donuts. You may not take advantage of that. For us, you may not get to Gadsden or somewhere in Birmingham. You may not take the time to do that. But if it was a part of your schedule one day, you would. Think about the words of our Lord. I'll give you several references that always come up in my mind. One of them being a statement Jesus made himself, Luke 18 and verse 1, where he said, Men ought to always pray and faint not. What does that imply? It implies that there are times in the lives of Christians where they do not pray. Where they faint at their prayers. Where their prayers are of lesser importance to them than they ought to be. I think about other words that are spoken throughout the New Testament. Another familiar one to you, 1 Thessalonians 5, 17. Paul there writes, pray without ceasing. What's the implication? Sometimes men cease from prayer. But that should never be a part of our lives. In this book right here, Paul talks about doing everything in prayer. Spending time in prayer. In the context of this, we know exactly what Paul is praying for because of some of the phrases he used. The first phrase he comes up with, he says, continue earnestly in prayer. He ties that directly to verse 3, that God would open a door to speak. He ties that directly to verse 4, that I ought to speak. He ties it directly to verse 5, that I ought to know how to go, how to act toward them that are on the outside. He ties it to verse 5, that I ought to know how to answer them, redeeming the time. So Paul's prayer in the context here is all directed toward the fact that he is willing to fulfill God's mandate in the beginning to pray. Therefore, we should and we also must pray. I think about that as well and just the way this is worded. And I know I use a statement sometimes to be cautious. I don't mean to get geeky or greeky. But this phrase here, it's why the New King James chooses these two words together to continue earnestly or what's known as the present active imperative. You say, what in the world does that mean? Present means it needs to be happening. It's not a matter of time, it's not a matter of when, it's not a matter of uh, when convenience arises, it's the fact that it needs to be happening. The active part of that in the Greek language means that it has to happen by me. You know, the prayers of our brethren are amazing, but the prayers that we fail to offer are lacking. It's the imperative mood, as in it just has to be the case. So what Paul says here is before you continue out, before you go out to meet with anyone who trying to ask of God to open a door, who you're trying to teach, who you're trying to speak to, who you're trying to redeem time with, who you're trying to answer, verse 6, before that happens, the mandate is we must pray. But that's not all the context tells us. Look at the next phrase or so. He says, continue earnestly in prayer. Watch the next phrase. Being vigilant. Old King James says, diligent in prayer. What does that imply? That's the method. That's the method by which we ought to pray. That is, we are diligent or vigilant in that. That is, we put a lot of work into it. 
How many times if, if you, and this wouldn't be literally all the time, but if you hit your proverbial knees in prayer on behalf of someone or something where you absolutely felt tired to a point after that was done? How many times have you prayed hard enough that when you finished up with that prayer that you felt as if you had had to give a part of yourself to God in order hopefully and prayerfully that He would give a part of Himself back to you? That's a relationship thing. Our communication with God that is mandated as well is also has a method to it. And we looked at this the last time I spoke, as a matter of fact, from Matthew chapters uh, 7. We looked at ask and it shall be given, seek and you shall find, knock and it shall be opened unto you. It's to be vigilant in that. It's to continue along in that. Meaning we take advantage of the opportunities. you ever had anyone in your mind, and I know that you have, where you've looked to this person, and, and it could be a family member, or a friend, a co-worker, whatever, and you think to yourself, you know what, I would love for them to eventually get to where I've gotten in life, spiritually. For them to read the Word of God as, as I would desire and as I, as I enjoy doing, for them to understand it, to obey it, to believe it, to do just what God says. And that's what I want for that person. And I want to be that person who stands in the gap, that helps them, that puts them in a position to do that. The way to make that occur is to allow God Himself to open that door through prayer. Next phrase. To continue earnestly being vigilant in it with thanksgiving. What is that? That's the mood we have to get into. Now, this is not a prayer that we offer on behalf or as a matter of frustration. It's not a matter of coming before God and saying, God, I guess I'm going to have to pray for so-and-so once again because, you know, they're, they're struggling in their lives and I've tried to teach them, I've tried to work with them, and they've just not yet been willing to hear their closed ears, their eyes are closed to this, they don't want to hear what the gospel is, the truth. Paul says it's a matter of thanksgiving. You ever been in a relationship with someone who that relationship in your mind, if you kind of look back at it or think it through and you think to yourself, well, that's all been one-sided, you know? You could have been friends for years or decades, and as you reflect back on that, you start realizing, you know, every single time that he and I or he and she or whoever that is, every time we talk, it seems to be that I have been the one that has introduced that. I've been the one to pick up the phone. I've been the one to text. And, and, and that's really the only time I ever hear from them is when I do it. Or sometimes we live on the other side of that where the only time we ever hear from them is when they need something. You know, I, every time the phone rings, I, and I have people, I, I, I am this way about it. It's just the way it is. The phone rings, I pick it up, and I think, oh, man. Oh, what's he, what's he, what's he got today? I got a busy day before I hit the button. on What, what in the world? At Thanksgiving. These prayers go with Thanksgiving. Next one here. Not only the mandate, the method in this, the mood, but look at this one. It's verse 2. Meanwhile, praying also for us. Now in the context, Paul is saying pray for those who you want to have an open door for. Pray for those who you ought to speak to. Pray for those who are on the outside. Pray for those that you can answer those people. That you can teach them. But he says also pray for us. What's Paul talking about? Well, he's talking about on one hand, he's talking about the lost, okay? 
The magnitude of this, as far as these prayers go, his first focus is going to be on the lost. But in putting in the phrase there, as God had inspired him to do, to pray for us, if you look at the context we've read down to verse 6, look in verse 7, very first name, word in verse 7, Titicus. Look on down into verse 9, we have Onesimus. Look on down into verse 10, we have Articuus. Look down a little farther in verse 10, we have Mark. We have Barnabas. We have Jesus. We have Epaphras. We have uh, Luke in verse 14. We have Nymphus. Of course, that's the churches there. We have the Laodiceans in verse 16. Context is what Paul says is, I want you to pray for the lost, but I need you to pray for us. Did Paul need prayers in his life? Absolutely he did. Did Paul ever need to pray himself in his life? Absolutely he did. You take that to another level, did Jesus ever need to pray in his life? He did. He at least took that opportunity to pray to his Father on numerous occasions. And so if Jesus, or in this case the Apostle Paul, either needed prayers and or committed themselves to prayer, how can we be any less? So in your mind, if you come down in your mind just, just right now and you try to visualize one person in your life, just think of one person in your life who you have access to right now, Think of that person and ask yourself, would I like to see them being saved? Would I love for them to obey the gospel? Would I love for them to be faithful as I am? And maybe if they even live in this area, would I love for them to be seated on the pew right between me and so-and-so, or right toward the sitting near me? Have I prayed for them? And how much effort would go into that prayer if I did? But look at what he says next. Continue earnestly in prayer, being diligent with thanksgiving, meanwhile praying also for us, watch this, verse 3, that God would open for us a door for the Word. What is that? That's his mission. God's desire, or I'm sorry, Paul's desire is that God would open a door for him. Again, now this kind of goes back to the previous ones that we made, the previous phrases we looked at. What the Apostle Paul says is, I'm praying that God will open a door for me to have access to whomever it is. It could be your child or your grandchild. It could be your friend. It could be your sibling. It could be your boss. It could be your teacher. It could be anyone in our lives that we want them to obey the gospel. We want them to know truth, but we've got to want God to open that door. Again, Paul prayed for open doors. That is access and his opportunities to speak with these people. One key in understanding that is mainly the fact that only God can open doors. You ever tried to open a door before that you didn't have a key to and it was locked? You know, we got all kind of ideas. I think the very first instinct is to jiggle the handle. Just, I don't know why we think that, but just, just jiggle the handle. Somehow this door is coming open. 
Or maybe if we go a little farther, well, it's locked, so I'm going to knock on the door and I'm going to see if anybody will come and open that door. And so you'll knock a bit, and if you're really concerned, you'll knock a little bit more and you'll keep going toward that. At what point do we get in the door? Because we don't have our own key, we get in the door when they open it. The doors that are open before us today in our work as God's children trying to be evangelistic are the doors that are only open by God. And the biggest mistake I make in my life every single day, I guess, is the fact that I pass open doors all the time, not giving God the credit for having already opened them. To pass people in our busy lives and think to myself, well, uh, not, not right now, not, not, right, not today, not in this moment, or, or we get in a situation like we're about to mention that Paul gets into where it's just not convenient at that moment, where it's just not the time, and, and, and God's already opened the doors. And we get a little bit farther in our lives and we get to a place in our lives finally where we say, you know what, I wish God would open a door for me to, to teach someone. Well, guess what? I passed a hundred doors last month that were wide open that I determined need not be approached, that I determined weren't worthy of my time. The open doors. The next phrase here that comes in a part of that still on the heading of the mission. One part of that mission was what I would call in that the way of the mission. That is God opens the doors. But the second part of this is what I would entitle as the word of the mission. Notice what he says. Verse 3, I'm in the latter part of it now. Meanwhile, praying that God would open for us the door of the word to speak the mystery of Christ for which I'm also in chains. What do you want to do with this door, Paul? I want to speak the mystery of Christ. Now, I can remember when I was in the Memphis School of Preaching one time, it was a long uh, explanation of this, but basically one of the preaching students uh, back earlier than I, he got a knock on his door one morning that he needed to go and fill in at a local lectureship. And the topic they told him he needed to cover, they said, you need to go down here and cover the mystery of Christ. Now what he did was lock the door and go hide under the mattress because he didn't want to do that. Bobby Liddell's his name, by the way. Y'all know some of him. What's the mystery of Christ? You say, well, well I tell you what, preacher, Jim, it's a mystery. So <laughs> I'm like you, I don't know what the mystery is. I mean, it wouldn't be a mystery if, if it weren't called that. I mean, preceding chapters, go back with me, you're in chapter 4. Go back over to chapter 1. Look in the beginning in verse 24. And if this is not a, a reference in your margin, I would make it one. Chapter 4, out beside verse number 3, put chapter 1, verse 24 through 27. Here's what it said. Paul speaking on behalf of God, And now rejoice in my sufferings for you to fill up my flesh with what is lacking, the afflictions of Christ, for the sake of, the holy, of His body, which is the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship of God, for which is given to me to fulfill the word of God. Now look at the next verse. It's a comma there at the end there as we punctuated it. End of verse 25. The mystery 
which has been hidden from ages and generations, but now, I've got that word circle, but now has been revealed unto His saints. To them God willed to make known what are the riches of the glory of the mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. He says, Him we preach, warning every man, teaching every man with all wisdom. Now, another context you can put beside this we won't go to. Go to Ephesians chapter 3 when you're at, at home on your own time and read that about the mystery of Christ as well. What is this mystery? Well, the mystery is, in nutshell, basically that at some point, which has already been established by now, but at some point Christ had promised to bring both Jew and Gentile into the same place, which is called the church. Chapter 1 told us that it's the church, it's the body, which is the church. That's what was connected there. Ephesians tells us the same thing. But to bring them together in the church. Now, you got to think about the way the Jews and the Gentiles had lived prior to this. The Jews had had continual, under the old law, continuous access, had been able to approach God in His temple for all this time. So had the Gentiles under a guise that they were to be proselytes, or that is they were to come of their own will and own accord to approach God as well. But the way the Old Testament worship was established in the courtyards that were surrounding the temple where worship was committed is they first of all had right in the very front, they had the priests and the Levites lined up. There was one court established for them. In behind them were basically the Jewish men. The court of the Jews was next. In behind that was the court of women. So Jewish women were included in that. In behind that, the farthest from access to the temple were the Gentiles. And in the mind of a Gentile and a Jew coming all the way up and to a point like is being spoken of here was a mystery because they are being told that one day they would worship together from the same position and in the same place. We know that takes place because on several occasions God has it to be inspired. The Apostle Paul is often responsible for pinning the words that we are of one body. That's what's said just here. That there is no difference between us, Jew nor Gentile, Jew or Greek. There is no difference between us, bond or free. Preceding chapter, chapter 3, verses 22 through 4, 1, tell that. That there is no difference, male or female. That everyone has access to God. But you see, in Colossians chapter 1, and what we just read through up into verse 27 says, God willed to make known the riches of His glory, the mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. So the mystery is Jew and Gentile can come together. The mystery is Jew and Gentile can have Christ in them. What does that mean? That means that they can have the same salvation given among them no matter where they're from or what they've been. Kind of a just as I am situation being brought in where Jew and Gentile alike can be together. That's the Lord's church today. There should be no barrier. There should be no boundary. There should be no situation in which anyone on the outside looks to the Lord's church and thinks to themselves, I could never be a part of that. I could never have access to that. 
There should be no boundary or barrier from us on the inside looking out where we say we should never have those people outside of these walls to be a part of us. Same context he speaks of breaking down in the Ephesian context, at least breaking down the middle wall of partition that once stood between them. It's a part of the mission. So we've got in this context, we've got the way of the mission, that is the doors have to be opened. We've got the word of the mission, that is the mystery has to be preached, that all men are everywhere are welcome to Christ through obedience and faith in Him. But we've also got in that terms the witness of this mission. Look what Paul says. The mystery of Christ, which is all which I, which, of which I also am in chains. Paul was willing to preach, to teach, and to reach everyone around him in spite of what it cost him. And this is not the only time Paul's in prison. Matter of fact, if you read through the book of Acts, basically the book of Acts goes through at least chapters, uh, is it 12 and following or 13 and following toward the end of the book where Paul starts to really get into his work his labor, we're introduced to him back in chapter 7, the latter, but by the time he comes back and he begins his actual work, more times than not, you'll see the name Paul. Before you get out of the chapter, Paul has been thrown out of town and or placed into prison. But yet he never gives up. That brings a point out to my mind. In the fact that I appreciate there's a mandate that I pray for people. There is a method. I need to be vigilant in it. There is a mood. I need to be filled with thanksgiving in doing that. The magnitude is that we pray for Paul. We pray for the lost. We pray for everyone on this behalf. But the mission involves the way, the word, but also the witness. The apostle Paul was in prison when he made this statement when he included all those people we read through, beginning with Titicus, through the rest of the chapter were included in these, those who needed prayers and needed support and courage and encouragement. He was in prison. Now what is often my reaction in a bad situation? You ever been in the hospital before? You've been in the hospital and all you can think about while you're there is, boy, I need to get better. I need to get out of here. And that's completely understandable. Absolutely understandable. But in a hospice situation, guess what? You've got access to people. You've got patients. You've got nurses. You've got physicians. You've got, you can name everyone in there who you, for that moment, have what I call a captive audience. And it may be that the open door that you've been praying for, God is now provided by allowing you to be in a hospital. You ever had a flat tire? That's frustrating. You ever had a flat tire and you get pulled over and eventually somebody tries to pull up and, and, and help you with that? And sometimes you're glad they're there and you, you take that help. Sometimes you, you say, I got it, don't worry about it. But either way, maybe that is a moment in which you could sit by them as the tire's being changed, whether you're doing it or them, and you could mention something to them about, you know what, I would love for you to come and worship with us. We gather at the Ironington Church of Christ all these times. and Or thank you so much for stopping to help me. I am so blessed. God has blessed me today by having this flat tire so that I could meet you. You can name situations. 
Paul is in prison. And in prison, he wanted an open door. He wanted access. And how many times in the life of Paul do we read where he was able to access and even convert those who were jailers and amongst him? Who were there not out of their own desire, but because they were just put in that place because I guess, I'm assuming providentially God brought them there. And God opens that door. So, in looking at this, the one thing that's evident is that in order for us to do the work that God has provided for us, to work along with Christ, to give people access, to have His Word to be done, have His will to be fulfilled, to seek and to save that which was lost. Luke 19 and verse 10 lets us know. It has to commence with growing prayers. And I put the word growing in there because I needed a G word that would align up with some of the others on the screen. But I put it there because that's what my prayer life needs. It needs to grow. And to include that. Somebody says, well, I don't know if it'll work. My question for most things like that is, have I actually tried it? Have I actually woke up in the morning, for an example, woke up in the morning and, and prayed to God, and one of the things I included in that was not only my provisions and my safety and my thanksgiving, but God put me somewhere today so that I can affect the life of someone else. And then to wait on Him to do that. Let Him open the door. I'll give you the last two points, but we won't be able to cover them. See it on the screen. Not only that, it must continue with godly living. Not only commence with growing prayer, but also continue with godly living. Look at what he says here in verse, it's really the, the verse 4 and the beginning of verse 5. He said, that I may make, may make manifest what I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom toward them that are on the outside. Godly living. Again, many times our lives get divided into the way we are, say, for example, on a Sunday at 11, 19. And preachers should never announce the time, but I did it. And the way I am, say, Monday at 7.30 a.m. Or maybe worse than that, the way I am at, say, 4.30 p.m. when I'm about to get off work and the boss calls me back over and says, I need you to stay for a couple hours. Or like my example, where I do get off work and on the way home my tire goes flat. Should I be the same Christian then as I am now? Would it make a difference in the lives of others if I would? It does. Walk in wisdom. The idea of walking is the idea of conducting something. Using wisdom as we encounter other people. The next phrase of this, he says, toward them that are on the outside. Redeeming the time. So we have to walk in wisdom, but we also have to take advantage of this time. Many of you have reared children already. 
they're grown. A lot of you have grandchildren, great-grandchildren. I know one or two have great-greats. I can't imagine making it to that. How have you redeemed the time with those family members, those children, grandchildren? How do I redeem the time with those that are on the outside, those that at this point in life are lost? Do I take advantage of that? Do I give them access? And then the last one here, conclude with gracious words. Look at the way he addresses or says to address these people. He said, let your speech always be seasoned with salt that you may know how you ought to answer them. The idea of gracious words is, is the idea that these words should bring some type of reward to those people. You know, sometimes just the words that you say and the way that you say things to others, it leaves them walking away saying, you know what, I've been, I've been blessed. They may not use the word blessed, but I'm, I'm so glad that I had that conversation with so-and-so today. I needed that. They, they, they were just, they just happened to be there in the morning. I needed that. The idea of them being seasoned with salt is the idea that these words have somewhat of a flavor to them, a savor to them. Food that is salted and has spices, of course, sometimes we get to a place health-wise, we have to throw all that out and we learn to live with it. But food that is flavorful is much more palatable. And the way we handle people, the way we deal with people, what we say is important, but how we say is equally as important at times. That it ought to be seasoned with salt. And then a very last phrase of that that we just read across so we may know how we might ought to answer each one. You know, there are times in the life of our Lord when the way He answered people basically was extremely direct. You know, you think, think about two examples that come side by side. In John chapter 3, uh, Jesus comes in contact with Nicodemus. Nicodemus comes to him, Art thou a teacher come from God and such as this? You know what Jesus did to begin with? He hit him right in the mouth. He hit him right in the mouth and he tells him, look, you, unless you see me, basically is what he's saying, you cannot access or see the kingdom of God unless you're baptized. Unless you're washed, unless you're born again, you can't access that. That must have been a shock to Nicodemus. You go to the next chapter, Jesus meets with a woman in the well. He's not that direct, but he's very deliberate. He takes time with her. He has several discussions with her that lead up eventually, starting with just simply asking her for a glass of water, a cup of water. But ultimately lead up to her speaking to her about her worship and then lastly about her worth and the value that she actually has to Him in spite of her sin. You're here this morning, you're not a child of God's. Everyone in this room this morning, I, I would assume, is, is, should be seeing it as an open door for them. And I pray that you're seeing what we're doing this morning in our hours of worship and in this time of discussion and understanding of God's Word to see it as an open door for you. Because it's simply a door that God opened centuries ago. If you're here this morning, you're not a child of God's. We would encourage you through faith, repentance, being willing to confess Him as the Son of God, as Christ, and being willing to be baptized, you can put on Christ. And the opportunity to obey the gospel is fully 
available at all times, but especially at this time. Maybe you're more like I am, and you, you have intentions and sometimes have some level of effort, but in some areas, including this one often, you fail to where your lifestyle doesn't always align with what you would want to teach or to evangelize the world with. Or maybe you just missed out on some of these efforts, some of these opportunities to pray for them, to be willing to live for them, and to be willing in this latter case here also to speak to them and to teach them truth through your lives and through your words, but all the while making sure the glory of God is brought to it. Invitation song has been selected. Won't you come while together we stand and as we sing?